Hi, I'm Deb Crow, and welcome to season two of the Heart Centered Leadership Podcast. This is a podcast where we connect, learn, and laugh together with strong leaders from all over the globe. Here, you will learn from peers you haven't even met yet. You will gain new tools to add to your leadership toolbox. Because whether you're a C-suite executive or a first-time entrepreneur, we all contend with challenges and there's always room for improvement if we choose to seek it. So please, pull up a chair and listen in. This is the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. Welcome back to Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. You know, I'm sitting here this morning drinking my coffee out of my beautiful new pottery mug that I bought off a friend of mine and he's giving all the proceeds to Ukraine. It's that beautiful blue and yellow. And I just pinch myself that I'm once again getting to speak with another heart-centered leader. This is going to be an intellectual stimulating conversation because I have Tom Tonkin, Dr. Tom, on the podcast today. And I'm switching things up in season three because I can read a bio and tell you how wonderful all of these heart-centered guests are that I'm interviewing around the globe. But I want to hear from my guests. I want them to tell you who they are. Storytelling's important. And I want you to welcome to the show, Dr. Tom Tonkin. And Tom, I would like you to tell our listeners a little bit about you. And then we're going to dive into some really fun leadership questions. Well, I certainly appreciate the time you've given me, Deb, uh, and good morning or afternoon and evening to your listeners. Uh, my tagline is I am a recovering executive. Many, many years in corporate America, learning, uh, getting uh, beat up, standing back up, and trying to figure out what it is that I do and, and how I can add value. You're talking about heart centered leadership, and, and I, I, I hearken back to Something that you and I talked about earlier today before we started recording, which was I was a professional musician many years ago. I went to music conservatory. I was I took it very serious as far as sort of the technical aspects of it. And this is my punchline. I thought, you know, if I'm really good at the at the thing, like if I'm good at playing and, and exercising, you know, all of the technique of whatever Fame and fortune will find me and uh, life will be just grand. And I never really took into consideration the people aspects of it. And that was an attitude that I brought into the business as well. Meaning if whatever technical thing or functional thing that I was going to do in business, as long as I did that well or better than everyone else, let's just be brutally honest, that I would ascend into fame and fortune and, you know, the corner office and all the other stuff. And as you well know, that is not the case. I did not take people into consideration. So that was, uh, that is what I've been uh, striving for is to really understand how I can add value specifically as we talk about how to interact with people and, you know, everything else is the window dressing with it. I love that you say you're a recovering executive. I've met so many, I've coached so many, and I lost five, 12 years ago. And that's how I landed in this space. So this is legacy work for us, Tom. That's right. It is. 
you know, my first question is, is wrapped around a comment that you wrote to me and you said, as a PhD in organizational leadership, I don't consider myself a leader as most people define it. Give us the backstory on where that comes from and maybe share a little bit about why you did your PhD and, and what did you do it in? So let's, let's get a running start, right? So, so once I figured out that it really was about people interaction and rapport building and communication and all of what is usually deemed soft skills, if you will, right? The ability to communicate with others and touch them and pretty much Deb, what you do on your podcast. I went back and got a, a different undergrad. I was a math major. I changed it to uh, organizational behavior because I figured, okay, well, if I'm going to know this, I should probably get schooled in it. And then I, I got my master's in organizational leadership as well as my PhD in organizational leadership because I kind of wanted all that cognitive stuff, right? I wanted to know things and understand all that. Then there's this other parallel life of mine, which is the executive, the leaders, the leadership part of it where I've, I'm, I'm, I'm directing and, and inspiring and all of those really cool branded leadership terms that we all love. And I, I had sort of this cognitive dissonance. It's this idea that's like, I know book savvy leadership, and then I know like what the heck I'm doing. And it's like, I'm not a leader, I'm not a leader, how it's defined. I'm not a leader as it pertains to all of the things that we believe leaders are. And that was hard. You know, that, that was hard to come to, to yourself and say, the thing you are supposed to be the smartest about <laughs> is not the thing you are at, you know, you're good at. But it was liberating. It was liberating because I figured to myself, like, you know, there's a lot of people that work for me that let me, you know, pat myself on the back. But I mean, they liked me and, and they followed me and, and we were successful. So, like, what happened? <laughs> like, what, what happened? And, and what I found out was that I was a much better coach one-on-one, you know, we're in the same kind of level peer-to-peer relationship than I was in any kind of hierarchical model. And, you know, in the business world, that just doesn't jive. You, you know, there's a hierarchy and the way you ascend is by having people work for you. And the only way you do that is by showing, you know, sort of the garden variety leadership things and, and you ascend and you move and you're supposed to be happy and all that. And I, I have to tell you that that just, that was very, very difficult for me. And so when see, people ask me about that, Knowing what I know, and I can help people with leadership. It's, it's like, I, I don't want to use it. Well, I'm, I'm going to have to use this metaphor. You don't have to have the disease to be able to cure, cure somebody, right? So as, as a doctor, so if you're a medical doctor, if you will, it's like, I don't have to have cancer to be a really good oncologist. Right? But you have, to, you have to know things. You have to be able to recognize it and all that. I feel the same way about that, you know, because people look to you and say, well, what have you done in your, in your leadership world? that you can contribute to me as a leader. And you're looking, my, my body of work really lands on a kind of a one-on-one, peer-to-peer, conversational. I do that with my blogs. I do it that with interviews. I do that with, heck, when I used to work in corporate America. You know, and, and sometimes that was kind of off-putting, uh, especially when you were in a room and you had like, say, I don't know, two or three tiers, let's say hierarchy. Again, that's all fabricated, right? That's in the, it's, or you're sitting in a room and there's a problem in front of you. And the leader the hierarchical leader stands up and says, we're all going to take this hill. And then I'd, 
unfortunately, unfortunately would stand up and say, yeah, I don't know if that's the right hill we should take. And everyone was like, oh, a gasp, you know, it's like, well, don't you understand that this is the person? It's like, well, I understand hierarchically that he's got, you know, this prominence, but that decision is one that I, I have issue with, and I'd like to put my ideas on the table. And, and, and if you don't want to do them, that's fine. I mean, I'm not going to hurt my feelings if you want to do them, but I think it's worth a conversation. And that was, that was bad. That's just not in the cards for, for people. And so going back to your question about leadership, that's not who I am, right? I, I would expect, if anything, I would get mad if I, if I was the leader in the room and I would say, hey, I think we should take this hill. And everyone goes, shakes their head and go, okay. We're, we're not going to do that. <laughs> Let's go back. Everyone have to think about it. You can come back. You got to push back because that's really the only way we're going to get better at doing this. Remember, this is sort of the theme of our discussion is how can we add value to other people? You know, it's it's such a deep and wide conversation. I could we could have a whole 30 minute podcast just on cognitive dissonance. <laughs> like when you said that my face lights up because that my background's in neuroscience so I'm going to switch the questions around here just because my third question was going to be around the cognition and your learning and we'll <laughs> yeah. come back because we can do that. We can pivot and ebb and flow here. We can do that. I love metacognition. I love, I love the word. I love telling people it's not a fancy word. It's just how you think about thinking. So for all of the listeners today that are listening to Dr. Tom, math major, high-level analytical thinker, share with us how you bridge the gap to become and maintain being a high-level analytical. But where did you leave room in your systematic way of thinking to embrace extrinsic and more importantly, intrinsic thinking in your leadership? That's uh, just an awfully, awfully, terribly great question because I don't have an answer for you. I continue to figure that out. If, if anybody in their programs has the, those personality tests in front, right? Like, you know, the analyticals, and you know, I pegged that, right? I mean, if you're looking at a dashboard, like that needle's pegged with me. Anybody with disc, right? That C, I'm, I'm a bright red flashing C. I am highly introverted as well. And so when, when I take my introversions breaks, if you will, I think about it, right? And I think about what it is that I did. I do a lot of reflecting. I've been journaling since 1998. And when I say journaling is I, I do all kinds of journaling. I do personal journaling. I do work journaling. Um, I do project journaling. Spend a lot of time journaling. And when I do personal work journaling, a lot of it is sort of just-in-time reflection. You know, it was, it was funny. When my wife and I were having this conversation, real deep conversation. She asked some really, really good questions about some things that we're going through. And I was like, I got to, I got to write it down. I got to sit down. I got to look at it. I got to figure this out because I know whatever I say will probably, you know, either be misunderstood or, or not well formulated or, or that. And that's, that's how I keep it. Now, no one sees that, right? Like, like when I'm talking to you and I'm not, I'm not pulling out my journal and say, hold on, Deb, let me look that up for a second. I'm, no one sees that, but at the same time, it's, it's something that allows me, like, I will tell you that I will reflect on this this podcast, these, these questions, especially the question you just gave me. But the idea that, you know, I've got it figured out, that's, that's just not right. I, I mean, I haven't. Put it this way, I, I get it right most of the time. Um, and I don't ever think I'll hit 100%. Part of me doesn't want to because that means you stop improving. You, you, you kind of sort of got there, whatever that means. But 
you know, I, I am. I, I am fairly, fairly analytical sometimes to a fault. I'll tell you what I love about your answer. Number one, look at the name of the show. You embrace yeah. imperfection like me and the 190 some odd leaders we've interviewed on this show. At the end of the day, there is no perfection. And I think the funnest part of any given day is living in the present moment. And if we can't have a good laugh at our own expense, at ourselves, and using that example of what you said, you know, sitting in the room and the leader saying, hey, let's climb this hill. And you're like, hey, wait a minute. I think we should go this way. That is what C-suite leaders want to see from their team at large, regardless of the levels of hierarchy. And the introverts, very interesting you brought that up. We really need to do some research on the show because over 75% of the people that I have interviewed on this show have all been introverts. So they are the people not talking in your meeting. Those are the people that used to talk and aren't talking now. And it's such a great conversation to have with the executive and the C-suite level because sometimes they don't know what they don't know and that you're there to help them. So I love that. So welcome to the land of imperfection. Enjoy the ride. It's so it's such a fun place to be. I am. I'll be one of your more celebrated individual citizens. <laughs> That's the uh, the the mantra or the the standard of imperfection. I am promoting myself today from tour guide to concierge. How's <laughs> yes, that? Very good. <laughs> now, my second question, which we have. We've now moved to my third question. I wanted to have permanent residency on the show because it's having a ripple effect. People are embracing it. It gives us a mindset shift. What imperfections, and you shared a few, do you bring on a daily basis to your heart-centered leadership, Tom? Boy, you got like really good questions. Um, So when I started my dissertation, it was on authenticity. I was all in. I was all in on authenticity. It's all about being, uh, you know, real. And, and you can even see that. I'm just saying, I'm just trying to be real. You know, it, it's down in the popular press and the popular vernacular. And I was reading, as a matter of fact, I did a lot of research. I actually talked to one individual that developed authentic leadership and in the academic world. And, and I have to tell you something. Each time I got deeper and deeper, I was very disillusioned, very disillusioned. And I'll tell you why. Authenticity like let's just break that down operationally, is self-referential. What that means is you as an individual are the only one who will ever know how authentic or inauthentic you are. You are the measure of that. And it's your transparency that actually will tell how much of that degree of authenticity people will know. Right. So I say transparency is a window shade to the soul. You, you just crack it open a little bit when I just, you know, I don't I don't trust you. I don't know you. So crack it a little bit. You can see a little more of me. Uh, maybe my family members. I got it wide open. But you are who you are. And I thought, well, this is not a very good leadership relationship builder. Yeah, I mean, this, you know, there's this nobility that came with it. You know, I'm just saying Deb, I don't like uh, I, I don't like the, the bookshelf behind you. You know, hey, I'm just being real. And then you would turn around and go, well, gee, thanks, Tom. I really appreciate you being real. And I'm thinking, what was the benefit of that little little exchange? So what I landed on, and I'm actually writing a book about this, was sincerity. Sincerity, to some extent, is the antithesis of authenticity. Because sincerity is others-centric. It's really about trying to build relationship based on other people. Sort of the best metaphorical 
view of this that I can bring or the analogy that comes with it is it's the difference between the golden rule and the platinum rule. So the golden rule basically says treat others as you'd like to be treated. Pithy, sounds great. Yeah, sounds really good. That means that whatever, however I'm going to treat you, I'm going to reflect back on how I would want to be treated and do that to you. Now, is that how you want to be treated? I mean, maybe, maybe the big rocks, like I won't hit you. I don't want to be hit, so I won't hit you, right? You know, that kind of stuff. But we're not talking about that, right? Talk about the nuance. The platinum room suggests the following. Treat others as they would like to be treated. Now, that sounds even pithier, but that's really hard to do because you have to go and try to figure out the other people's values, their dreams, their aspirations. Hey, sincerity doesn't always mean you know, rainbows and unicorns either, right? It could be like, hey, I, I, need, to, I need to have a tough dis, uh, conversation with you. But that tough, tough conversation, if you're authentic, barring that terminology here for a second, about what it is that you want to help the other person with, that works. And that's really hard to create because you now have to have rapport and you have to have all sorts of extra connection. That is a backdrop, it's been really hard for me to mature into a truly sincere person. I remember a while back, I was much younger um, than I am, but still, still an adult where I came to a lot of these realizations and I went back and I apologized to people. I, I was wrong. And, you know, I called people that hadn't heard me in years. Like, well, why are you calling me? And like, well, I'm calling for me. <laughs> so you, you never have to talk to me again. Kind of thing, but I, I really want to apologize for you know for how I treated you or what I said or, and I have to tell you I still haven't done you know my list is is you know is like there's obviously people that I'll never be able to talk to, but really having an others centric view at the level of depth that I just created is probably my largest and biggest imperfection. I'm going to tell you what I love about that. My definition of heart centered leadership is honoring your connection with people. And you hit on two points. When I was in the medical world and I dealt with people who were injured or, you know, traumatized, catastrophic, like bad stuff, I had one chance to make a first impression of securing in a heart-centered way, trust and rapport. And if I didn't get it, it wasn't going to be good. I never took for granted that moment in time because I couldn't relate to them because of what had happened, but I could control authentically and with sincerity who I was. And I loved sitting with those people at their kitchen table. And I would write notes that had nothing to do with treatment or medical anything. And it was really lovely to come back and say, George, how are you doing? And how's your new grandson? And how's that new puppy? And the look on their face repeatedly was, you remembered that I said that to you? Yeah. Absolutely, I did. I, I have been gifted with a great memory and a depth of listening that I don't take for granted and I work on every single day. So when, when you frame it the way you did, again, we're a work in progress, all of us. But I want to take it one step further because this is such a great conversation. Honoring your connection with that authenticity and that sincerity that you're talking about 
it doesn't mean that it leaves room for transaction. The only transaction that's reciprocal is listening and the exchange of soft skill, which is really trust, rapport. Hey, you know what, Tom? I'm loving this conversation. I am all in. I am so present with you right now. I don't even know what else is going on in the world. That's where people lose sincerity and authenticity because they get succumbed with, oh, I got to get this deal. I got to close this deal. I got to get this number of, there's no room for that. And you know what? For the people that think they're heart-centered and they're not, I say kindly to you, your nonverbal communication is witnessed before you open your mouth. And it's harsh, but again, you can say hard things in a nice way. So if you're trying to be heart-centered, that's the first kind of inner work that you need to do. Your behavior should match your brand. When we were getting ready to do this, I looked at the title of your podcast, and I'm going to tell you that reluctantly... Thank goodness you had the word imperfect in the title. Had it not been there, I don't think I would have been worthy to be on that lead, or at least I would have thought that way, right? So hard of centered leadership. It's like, who am I to even claim that? And you know, and, and if 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 Deb wants to talk about heart centered leadership without the imperfect part, I was like, ah, I don't know if I'm the right person for that, for that conversation. I want to I want to add a story here. So in my in my research for sincerity, and and I went and I'm talking dissertation level, hardcore, qualitative, quantitative, you know, all that, all the rigor that comes with it. They're in, well, I ended up in three dimensions. And one of the dimensions is, is empathy and sincerity. Now, now, now that get, that, that term gets thrown around a lot. Um, and so in, in the book, actually it's chapter four that I'm writing and, you know, I, I get into a very operational, that's, that's my, that's my shtick, right. As I try to operationalize and demystify some of these terms so people can go and practice them. And in my research, I, I ran across a, an interview with none other than Alan Alda of MASH fame, of those that remember that. And he was talking about empathy. And I'm like, how did I get in this weird part of, the, of YouTube? So I listened. And I tell you something, because the reason I'm bringing up the story, something you just said earlier, was he wanted to practice empathy. So the way he did it was he started by guessing people's situations by just looking at them in the street. It kind of became a game. Like if someone was sad and they were, you know, walking their child, I mean, you know, what, what, what interactions was going, what were they thinking? Or if he approached a, a waiter at a restaurant and they acted a certain way, he tried to get into their shoes in their lives. And so he would look at people, look at people, look at people, smile, look at people, smile. And he, he went across, he ran across a, a real social science researcher and, and just had this conversation. And the researcher said, uh, you came up with this little idea all by yourself. And he's like, oh, yeah. He goes, well, let's, let's put it to the test. Let's use rigorous study to see where it came out there. Here is the punchline, which was something that, that you said, the most powerful thing that occurred was that others were noticed by Alan Alda, period. That was the one that had the greatest, forget sincerity, forget the empathy, forget all that other stuff. The fact that Alan looked at somebody in their eyes, smiled, nodded, whatever, shook their hand, that had the biggest impact in connection outside of what really was happening. 
And I got to tell you, if you think about it, it makes sense. And it's also a shame because it's really that simple. You know, it's, it's so interesting. We're going to forget my fourth question because I want to follow up on that. You don't realize as a parent how much you've taught your children until you're with them and they're adults. And I'll give you a great example of this. And it, as you were talking about Alan Alda, it made me think of this. Whenever we were approached as a family, whether we were in a parking lot, walking in somewhere to a restaurant, or whenever a homeless person would be on our path or would walk up to us, we always stopped. And the first thing we did was have eye contact. And I would say, hi, my name's Deb. What's your name? And my children watched this from such a young age. And I would always give them food or I'd go get a gift card. I never give them money. I always want to, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is is right there in the forefront of my cognition. They need food. They need water, right? Yep, yep. And it was last summer when we just started venturing out again and all four of us were together because we're all over the place now. And it was really interesting. There was a gentleman laying on a cardboard box. It was freezing. And my kids knelt down and introduced themselves. And they said, what would you like for dinner? (laughs) And I just paused and I looked at my husband and I said, if you've ever doubted what we've done as parents, we've raised decent, respectful, heart-centered women here. And, and the look on this guy's face, he started to cry. My other daughter gave her mitts to him and kept talking to him. And the other one ran into our Tim Hortons, our famous Canadian coffee shop, and got him exactly what he wanted. And I just stood there in awe with my husband and and we also chatted with him because people walk by people with disabilities or that are homeless, or they may see someone with a visual impairment. Most people with a visual impairment have some level of vision and it's really fun to watch how people interact or choose not to. But it's like you said, the key is being present in that moment is so powerful. You want to get a handle on your cognition be present. You know, we can't, there's nothing we can do about 20 minutes ago and and we can't wish upon tomorrow. We got to stay where we are, which is right here and right now. So I knew this was going to be a great conversation. Well, first of all, congratulations uh, on on raising two wonderful girls and especially in today's society when we arguably have a lot of headwinds against all of those kinds of things. But no, no, no caveats. No, no additional comments. I don't want to ruin that that moment. Well, I've got I'm going to be a grandma in July, so I'm pretty excited. It's going to be well, the best you. role that I'm stepping into yet. Have you have you picked your grandma name yet? I have. I had an Irish Nana, so I'm going to be Nana, Nanny, whatever comes out yeah. of that little lover's mouth is whatever I'll be. It doesn't really matter. But. Well, it's interesting because usually you give them like, for example, I am a grandfather and I am Poppy. And my wife is Gigi. It's funny when, when he's, uh, he's four years old and, uh, you know, if I pick him at the daycare or something when the kids can't get him, I'll pick him up at daycare and, and they'll say, because he's got, you know, he's got me from his dad, my son. And then of course, grandma, grandpa are my daughter-in-law's parents. And so I pick him up and they go, Oh yeah, his name's Grayson. Grayson. 
your, your grandpa's here. And he runs up and then he, he looks at me, he goes, that's not grandpa. That's poppy. <laughs> that's such a fun age for, right? Like, get yeah, it right. Exactly. Don't you know yeah, who right. this is? I know. It's like, don't be kid with me. You know, it's it's just a different stage in life. And, and I say that to people, don't get caught up in your leadership because aging is a gift, which is denied to many. And, you know, we have to step away from our roles Our uh, you know, or if you're an entrepreneur, you got to take this time because it is our richest commodity and there's nothing better than seeing your child become a parent. So, amen. Okay. I'm going to switch to my fab four, four rapid questions. Just want to know what's sitting on the top of that researcher, analytical, intrinsically limitless mind of yours. I'm ready. Tell us something we don't know about you. I'm fluent in Portuguese. Oh, wow. Love it. My mother's Brazilian. She's living with me now. Uh, She's much older. And uh, uh, that was actually my first language before English. Well, one of my dearest friends is Portuguese. And I'm probably not even going to say this word right, but I'll do my best. She makes Portuguese donuts and frequently porch drops at my house. Uh, Malasadas. Mm-hmm. They're very delicious. They are very delicious. They're too delicious, but that's her love language for me. So I accept them and I share them with the neighborhood. Second question. I am going to grant you a wish to have dinner with any leader of your choice. This leader could be living or they may have passed away. Who are you having dinner with and what is the dinner conversation? I have two and maybe I can invite them both. I am a Christian. I would love to have a conversation with Jesus Christ but I would also love a conversation with Abraham Lincoln. I don't know if you ever had a chance to read Team of Rivals, Doris Godwin Kearns or Kearns Godwin. Put it this way. You put that in Google, you'll find it. Book called Team of Rivals, probably her best book. She's a presidential historian here in the U.S. And uh, that book, you know, I mean, it's so funny because it was uh, 1865 around that area where this country, it could have been now. <laughs> what was going on? The divisiveness. Uh, you know, the emancipation of slavery and, and all of all that went through that. It's like, how were you able? This is the one question I would ask. How were you able to step out of yourself and see what was going on? Because that's what it would that's what it would take. Right. Is is having a higher standard or some kind of like who who would blame anybody to have these kinds of feelings and understandings because you were taught about slavery and that because you grew up in it and yet step out of yourself and go, hold on a second. Not only is all of this wrong, but here's all the other stuff that I need to do to make all of this happen. There you have it. That would have been my. Well, you're you're the second guest that I've interviewed and I don't even know what number we're at. I know we're close to 190 that has wanted to have dinner with Abraham Lincoln. And then my third question was your favorite book, which you've just answered. So I think you are the first overachiever on the fab four. I'm, I'm giving you that title. <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, I have all sorts of, yeah. So yeah, let's not even ask because that's one of my favorite books. I mean, I've got uh, just a, a ridiculous amount of that. That's the big joke at, 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 in my house with my wife. Look, I don't go out drinking, carousing. I don't, I just spend all my money on books. <laughs> I love books. I'm with you. I love, love, love books. I, you know what? There's nothing wrong with being an avid reader. Yeah, it's, it's introversion and reading. I mean, what a perfect pair. You're in good company in the circle of imperfection here. 
I knew this was going to be a great conversation. Uh, before we close out the show with my last question, I just want to say thank you for sharing your time and wanting to be on the show and sharing your imperfection and your heart. And I look forward to more conversations with you, Dr. Tom, because there's going to be many more. I can see that. Well, thank you for your time, Deb. So question number four is how I, how I finish the show off. Never had the same answer twice. Finish this sentence for me. Heart-centered leadership is? Is having an others-centric view of your connection. You've been listening to the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. I'm Deb Crow. If you like what you heard today, please rate and review the show. And I'd love it if you'd visit my website at debcrow.com, where you can sign up for my newsletter and get access to the Heart-Centered Leadership Toolkit, all free of charge. Thanks for your time, and we'll see you again.